Well, where do you go after the book of Hosea to the book of Ephesians, of course? Makes perfect sense. Only I'm not going to explain it this morning. I'll explain as we go through week to week why Ephesians is the natural complement to Hosea's very difficult and dark and heartbreaking prophecy. And this morning we begin in Paul's letter at the first chapter. Obviously, we'll read the first 14 verses. Young Christians, young theologians, we'll talk about love this morning in a number of different ways. I want you to listen to see if you can explain in one of those ways what love is like. Listen to how we talk about love and that's your work. See how you can describe and explain love. What is it like? Here is the good news of Jesus Christ given to his church through this letter of Paul the Apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set All of this forth to us in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, And believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Pray with me as we begin. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask You to speak to our rocky hearts once again. Speak to us Your good news and Your love and Your grace and soften us to it. And make us alive under it and give to us joy and thanksgiving and celebration to know the height and depth and breadth of your love. We all too often underestimate your love to us. And it shows, it shows in us regularly, daily, hourly. And so we ask you to give to us a more accurate inventory an accounting of these things, that we can be changed and renewed. And if you'll do all of these things, we will give you thanks. We ask it all in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? If love makes sense, it isn't love if you can draw it up as an, occasion, as an equation, rather, if you can make love make sense on paper, you're doing math, you aren't loving. 
Love, if it's done right, costs a lot. More than that, it costs everything. You've spent down everything you have to use as far as you know, and then you keep spending. And if you speak of love in terms less than this, then please, please stop speaking of love. See, it doesn't make sense that Hosea loves Gomer and that God loves sinners and that the father in the parable loved the prodigal son and that Jesus loves you. But it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to make your head spin and leave your tongue stammering. The way we want to define love is in a very limited sense so that we never actually have to do it. But when Gomer, the runaway wife, came home, Hosea didn't treat her like a a parolee. He didn't treat her like a probationer. He treated her like a wife. You understand? He gave her a key to the house. He gave her a bank card. She could have emptied out the bank accounts all over again. He gave to her the thing that was always hers, his heart. And he bought her flowers. And he called her honey and dear and ran errands for her. And he put her on his arm and paraded her around town. He took her out to dinner And while neighbors whispered about them, about her, he would lean across the table and he would say, have I ever told you I love you? And tears would well up in her eyes, the eyes that far too often turned away from him. But here he was gazing longingly into them through the candlelight again and she chokes out, Yes, you've told me you love me. And he squeezes her hand and he says, let me tell you again. There are times when she goes by herself up into the bedroom and she sits on the end of the bed and she weeps into her hands and she wonders to herself, why doesn't he hold against me what I've done to him? Why doesn't he not let me forget who I am and where I've been? Why doesn't he yell? Why doesn't he punish me? And when he finds her like this, he sits on the end of the bed with her and he puts his arm around her and he tells her of the time he first saw her, how beautiful she was to him and how much more beautiful she is to him now. And he writes for her love poems and he reads them out loud to her. And he believes every word in them even though they're hard for her to believe. Because according to the Bible, the Bible that tells us of a redeeming God and an interrupting Savior and a renewing Spirit, according to the Bible that tells us all of this, love doesn't know when to quit. The next time I'm in Chicago, I want to go to the Sears Tower. When I was a college student in that city, you could go to the Sears Tower and stand up on the observation deck and look out 
over the cityscape. But now they've made renovations. There are glass-enclosed rooms, three walls and a floor and a ceiling made entirely of glass. And the rooms extend four and a half feet out from the face of the building. So as you stand in this glass room, the illusion is you are suspended 103 stories above the ground. For you non-architects, that's 1,353 feet. It gives you a sense of scale. It shows you how small you actually are. And you have this terrifying, staggering view from heights that you shouldn't be at. And this passage is architecturally designed to do the very same thing. It carries us up to heights that we weren't built, built to reach on our own. And we're not supposed to stay at these heights. We're not supposed to live here. They're dizzying and overwhelming and thrilling and terrifying all at once to realize we're loved like this. This kind of love doesn't equate, this this kind of love doesn't compute. And if you start running figures on it, immediately it's lost. And the only thing you can do is give yourself over to it and go where it takes you. And then you end up like Gomer, treated as a true wife. Or the prodigal, called the pride of the family. But so that we don't immediately get theological vertigo, let's go through the passage backward. We'll scale the text. We'll climb up through it verse by verse, hoping to get to the summit and the peak. In verse 10, God has established a plan for the fullness of time, a plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. His plan is to overcome, to overpower the sin that has torn us from Him. His plan is to re-knit what was violently and explosively divorced under our sin. The full desires of God toward us and the underdeveloped, malnourished desires that we have. Longing for other lovers in place of Him. And then verse 9. His will and purpose are mysterious. But He's made them known to us. He's shown them to us in what Christ has done. And then verse 7, in Christ is this reuniting. It's a redemption, a repurchasing, a reclaiming of what was lost through the pouring out of the blood of Jesus. The beauty of the cross is Jesus bleeding out the guilt that pumps in our veins. Also in verse 7, this is the forgiveness of our trespasses. The removed, taken. All of our offenses are put to death, never to rise up again. In verse 6, He's blessed us in Jesus the Beloved. That's amazing. We are cherished by Him. He looks at us through the perfect sonship of Jesus the Beloved. And that's the way He sees us. This is The standing, this is the ground of our adoption. We're his sons and daughters with the family name and all the rights and privileges that come with it. He looks at us in Jesus and he calls us his beloved. And there's no mention, not a hint of ever losing it, ever being unadopted or being disowned. 
And then verse 5, all this is from his will. He wants to do it. He's not tricked or trapped into doing it. It's his eternal joy to do it. And it's grace, meaning the disqualified are made full partakers. In verse 4, standing before him, we're holy and blameless. Now, if you followed me through my days, that's not what you'd call me. If you tailed me and graded my life, you would not say of me that I'm holy and blameless. But he says it of me. He dresses me to stand before him. And not only do I get his name, I get his reputation, his works, his standing. He puts his holiness on me. And he drapes his blamelessness over me. Also in verse 4, he chose this for me. He chose me for this before the foundation of the world. Before there was a creation for me to sin with. Before there was a creation for me to use against him. To subject to myself and my own false kingship. A creation for me to steal and use for my own self-worship. And his choosing all of this shows that the divine heart was set on this for me. And there's no talking him out of it or turning him off from it now. And then verse 3, we're seated in Christ's place with Christ. He put himself on our cross to bring us all the way up to his throne. He crowded us out of our cross so that we could crowd around his throne and be forever blessed and Then we jump back to verse 5. He predestined this for His glory. It's not to be missed. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be indulged in. Whenever I go to the mountains, I usually end up getting altitude sickness. It's caused by low air pressure and lower concentrations of oxygen... And usually I get dizzy and fatigue and headaches. The last time we were in the mountains, I had a racing heart and a shortness of breath. I would take deep lungfuls of air. And I could never catch my breath. It felt like someone was standing on my chest. Really, the only treatment for altitude sickness is either to adjust or descend to lower altitudes. And if we were to stay at the higher altitudes of predestination and glory too long, we might just pass out. And this passage, even though it carries us up to the rafters of heaven, we're not meant to stay there. And it brings us back down to street level in the last two words of verse 4. All of this was done in love. And that's the phrase that should echo with increasing loudness and emphasis throughout the passage. In love, God established His plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus. In love, He redeemed what was lost. In love, He suffered the reconciling cross. In love, He adopted us with new names and new identities given. 
In love, He made it His will to do this. In love, He poured all of this out to us from His grace. In love, He makes us holy and blameless. In love, He chose this for me before the foundation of the world. In love, He gives me the blessings of Christ to share. And in love, He predestined that it should be this way. And no objection or disbelief of mine or anyone else's could ever undermine it. We're given wings just long enough to see these things that we can't fully grasp. And then we're brought back down to understand them at ground level. These 14 verses say to us again and again and again, You don't believe it, but you are loved. And the thematic language used around all of this is very important. You might have missed it. We haven't highlighted it yet. But it's monetary language. It's financial language. Banking language. Treasury language. Trust fund language. The riches of His grace have been lavished upon you. Poured out. Dumped on you. In other words, here. Here's more. And here's even more than that. And in verses 11 and 14, the most specific word to describe all of this is used. It's called an inheritance. The love of God toward us spends all it has on us. And it can't be spent away. It can't be spent down. There's too much of it to ever be used up. You couldn't do it if you tried. And by the way, you're supposed to try. That's what the text says. You're supposed to try to spend up all of His love. See if you can do it. There's a little magazine, it's a literary journal titled Poetry. In the 90 years of its circulation, it's published all the greats in the field. Everyone from T.S. Eliot to Wallace Stevens to Marianne Moore. If you want to get rich, don't become a poet. The former poet laureate of the U.S., Ted Kuzer, says, become a bricklayer, you'll make more. The magazine has four employees and it occupies some 600 square feet of office space tucked away in the skyline of a major city. And over all these years, it's gotten away with paying its poets just $2 for every line published. It's a very modest endeavor. But in 2002, Ruth Lilly, who is the heiress to the Eli Lilly Pharmaceutical Fortune, bequeathed some of her wealth to the magazine. And when the poetry world heard of it, jokes started to circulate. Ah, the magazine's going to get really slick now. Slick covers, beautiful office spaces, new hairdos for everyone. And then the figure was announced. Poets choked on their rhyme schemes and scansions. A hundred million dollars had been given to the magazine. The poet Barry Lopez said, That's more money than poetry has gotten in total since Homer. You see how different it is from winning the lottery? 
Very different from hitting the jackpot, a lucky strike. Someone has this and wants you to have it. This is all for you. And realizing that, we go from limp, linty pockets to pockets bulging and spilling over, pockets heavy and loaded down and impossible to empty out. That's how you're loved by the God of the universe, the God of glory, the God of holiness, the God of mystery, the God of mercy, the God of salvation, the God of grace. And so much of the gospel is just holding out to us our limitless inheritance. And so much of our sin is denying that we have any inheritance at all. And I'm pretty sure you didn't hear that the way I need you to hear it. So I'm going to say it again. Just humor me. So much of the gospel is just holding out to us our limitless inheritance in the love of God through Jesus Christ the Beloved. And so much of our sin is denying that we've been given any inheritance at all. Acting like beggars and gamblers and thieves because we simply refuse to believe the riches of His love to us. But the overwhelming volume of His love is the answer to all that unlawfully rules over our hearts and imprisons them and corrupts and pollutes them. It's the answer to everything that tortures and torments us. And that's why Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus with it. So back down at street level. If you're going to live jealously and eaten up with envy and comparison, or swallowed up with suspicion, trying to manage wild, untamable fears. If you're going to live with greed and avarice and hubris and a, carniv- a, 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 a carnivorous, cannibalistic pride, if you're going to kindle in your heart a narrative of victimization and blaming, followed and solved by schemes of justice exacted, And vengeance satisfied. If you're going to armor yourself with coldness and unconcern, the shell of callousness, and you're going to be hard-hearted and tight-fisted with love toward others, if you're going to live by whining and complaining and seething and the nursing of grudges and hurts, if you want to live defensively, if you're going to live a life of protecting yourself, And rejecting others, hiding the worst in yourself and highlighting the worst in those around you. If you're going to live scrounging and scraping and stealing from others what you think you need to live on. If you're going to live a life of keeping accounts and balancing emotional books. Always sure to decimal points of what you're owed. How others have defaulted and are in arrears toward you. If you're going to live like that, all you have to do is step out of the story of the gospel. All you have to do is pretend that Jesus never came in our flesh with righteousness. 
And he never put our death to death in himself. And he never rose for our glorious release. All you have to do is stand before God, the generous Father and the Son who's opened the fullness of all of his blessings to us. You stand there in the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of all of, it, all of this. You stand before this God and hold out your hands to Him and say, You've given me nothing. Nothing. You've sent me away empty-handed and you've left me empty-handed. And God does what He always does. He pulls us close and He gives us more. And He says to us, You must be joking. All that I have is all that I have for you. And with such an inheritance, how can you pretend to be unloved? See, with all of this, I don't have to pretend to be loving. And I don't have to rewrite and redefine love in order to make myself appear loving. And I don't have to try to love from some reservoir within myself that's been stockpiled and built up. But what this tells me is I love out of his vast estate. And I can expend so much in love and faith and hope and joy that it doesn't make any sense at all to onlookers because his love to me never runs in deficit. It never goes to the red. And I don't have to watch the ledgers on it either. There's so bloody much of it then why do we so often feel that we run so low in love, like panhandlers and hustlers and misers and hoarders trying to keep a tight rein on what we need for ourselves? Because we live in the difficulties of the flesh and not in the promises of the gospel. Because... We believe our circumstances more than we believe the good news. Because we live from our own means and not from our limitless, bottomless inheritance in the love of God. And to skeptics, this passage says, come be rich in the love of God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to speculate if He loves you. Come find out in Jesus Christ, unbelievers, all this can be yours. You won't have to wonder at his love anymore. It won't be this nebulous, undefined thing. When you forget it, when you disbelieve it, he'll remind you of it and call you to it again and again and again. And to Christians, this passage says, Stop denying that you are rich in God's love through Jesus Christ the Beloved. All this is yours. And it won't run out. It can't run out. It wasn't so long ago that Mississippi landowners would invite their sharecroppers into the farm office to settle up the yearly accounts on Christmas Day. It was always done on Christmas Day. One sharecropper would come in at a time. And the landowner would sit behind his desk and he'd serve bonded whiskey to the sharecropper and fine glassware and he'd pretend to be friendly with the sharecropper like he was looking out for his best interests. And then the landowner would play a a sly trick 
he would ask if the sharecropper wanted to be paid with a check, and he'd get the check out. You want to be paid with this thin little old piece of paper that's worth nothing. And he'd pull out a big wash tub full of silver dollars and let the sharecropper run his hands through them. And the coins would glint in the farm office lights. And they'd ring as they ricocheted off each other, falling back down into the tub. And the landowner would say, Or do you want me to pay you in silver dollars? You can take as many as you can fit into your pockets and stuff in your hat and load up in your arms. As many as you can carry home today, I'll pay you in silver coins. And even with as many coins as a sharecropper could carry home to his unbelieving family, that was only a fraction of what he had earned in the course of that year. And the sharecroppers always fell for the trick. And Jesus is not devising ways to hold on to his wealth. He pours it out to you. He means for you to have a limitless share in all of his riches. Following Christ. Belonging to him by his predestination. By his choosing. It's not a con or a swindle. It's an inheritance. It's coming into something that wasn't yours and can't be taken away from you now. And the passage says, we're the sharecroppers called into the farm office on Christmas Day. And Jesus signs the check over to us. He signs all the checks in his desk over to us. And he kicks the whole tub of silver dollars over to us. And he says, quit living in that little shack of yours and come live in the big house with me and stop farming those measly, dusty three little acres. The whole farm is yours. But why? Because I love you. And for those I love, all I have is theirs. Use it. Spend it. Give it away. And when you feel you're running low, come back. I have more. There's always more. There's always more than enough in my love. And you may not believe it, but you're an heir. You're an heiress all that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So often I have acted as if I am poor, O Lord Jesus. Too often I have acted as if you have given me nothing, and I accuse you regularly of not giving me nearly enough. And it simply isn't true. All that you have, you have for your children, your people. Oh Lord Jesus, help us to see that we are rich in the love of God in Christ toward us. And help us to see that we can stop living as beggars and hustlers and thieves. Instead, we can trust the fullness of your love. And from this, we can love each other and stop abusing and mishandling and mistreating each other.
the fullness of your love is what allows us to love beyond and outside of ourselves. We know that this kind of love exists where it's just such a rarity to us. But not anymore. Not with the good news that we have in this opening passage of Ephesians. Allow us to live not from our circumstances, but from our inheritance. And allow us the unusual joy and grace of spending away the riches you give to us, only to find there is always more. If you'll do these things for us, we will give you thanks. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our great salvation.